does it take to keep a promise? What does it take to keep a promise? You know, sometimes not much. Uh, you might promise to pick something up from the store. You might promise to go to a young relative's piano recital. Most of the time, those are not hard things to do. But there are other promises that are extremely important and yet hard to keep. Usually, these are the ones that are costly, not only in terms of money, but in time, in effort, in attention. These are ones such as your marriage vows, your commitment to Christ's church, commitment to, to love someone else through, through thick and thin. And suddenly we find there that a promise isn't always such an easy thing to uphold, even when we have the best of intentions. This morning we're going to be looking at a very small chapter of the story of Joseph. Uh, in, in fact, the verses before us today will probably, initially, seem like they don't have too much of a point. Because what we read up here is simply the confirmation of some things that were said at the end of the previous chapter. Why should we spend our very precious or limited time on these few verses? Why not just move on to another passage and combine this with something else? Well, the answer is not too different than what I said when we went through genealogy. But this time I want us to see another aspect of the guidepost of scriptures. Because this time the answer is that these verses confirm something far more important, far deeper rooted than simply moving the story of Joseph along. In fact, these verses point us toward a promise made by the Lord that is only now being kept generations later. And the faithfulness of our God is something that we always must and dare not miss it. To do so, then we'll be lacking. So, I want us to grasp exactly that as we open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 47 this morning. Look to God's Word. So let's look to Genesis chapter 47. begin. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, oh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. The passage this morning breaks into two simple parts. 
a request, which is the verse that we just read, and then a blessing, which is what we're going to come to here after a few minutes. Uh, remember the background. Otherwise, we'll kind of just drop in in the middle of the story. Uh, in Genesis chapter 46, Joseph had prepared his family for their interview with Pharaoh. So the, the chapter has ended up. And he called on them to emphasize their very real, traditional family job of raising livestock. There in chapter 46, we received only a very hint of the reason why. Ultimately, it was so that the family could be kept together rather than potentially being assimilated into Egypt. So, much like what we read of earlier, of how the Egyptians wouldn't eat the Hebrews. Remember, there was that whole feast with Joseph and his brothers and the Egyptians, and they all ate separately. So it is here. The Egyptians don't want to live near the Hebrews either. Now, having returned to Egypt with his brothers, their family, his father, their, their flocks, all that they owned, Joseph brings some of the family before Pharaoh. And we begin with five of his brothers. Just to note a few things in this interview that they have here. Uh, the first is that Joseph presents his brothers as having already settled in the land of Goshen. At least temporarily. They, they, they've got a foot into the door, so to speak. And it seems that Joseph is saying to Pharaoh, you know, in essence, kind of, hey, my, my family's already, you know, they're, they're unpacking in Goshen. You know, they're already there. I mean, you can let them stay there, right? This is okay with you, right? Reminds me of that, you know, sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than permission kind of a thing. But in this, we see that Joseph has a plan. He has an intention. He wants his family to stay together and to be separate from this Egyptian culture who worships other gods. And he's willing to even, even kind of push things a little to make that happen. That's the first point. Here's the second. Pharaoh asks Joseph's brothers exactly the things that Joseph had prepared them for. What are, your, what are your jobs? They answer, well, they're, they're shepherds following in the pattern of their forefathers. We need to remember that to this point, God's people had largely been nomadic, right? moving around, rarely staying in one place for, for more than a few years. And that mobility meant that they needed to provide for themselves in a way that was likewise mobile. Right? I mean, a farmer's not going to work, but being a shepherd meant that the flocks could follow with them. So you see that this is a part of what it means to be God's people before uh, we get to the point, like we've just been studying in Sunday school, before we get to the point of this established kingdom and lands that are divided up and the capital and the army and that sort of thing. Right? At this point, remember, the people of God are relatively small. It's about 70 people, and about, a, about a church, in essence. These are the ones who have received God's promises. Third, then, pay attention to the request and the response. Uh, the brothers outright ask to be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen. If you don't have a map in front of you, uh, this would be a land that was away from the seat of power at that time. 
in that request of an unexpected benefit. From Terrell's point of view, it's great. We can keep these weird Hebrews and their odd practices and their God that we don't understand. You know, we can keep them away from us, you know, cultured, important Egyptians. Right? No wonder he's so quick to grant their request. There's a part of me that almost wonders if he's kind of sweating a little. Oh, great. Where are they going to want to? Oh, perfect. They can, they can live out on the edge. That's, that's wonderful. What's going on here, though, with these requests? I mentioned at the start that none of this should be surprising. I mean, the previous chapter anticipated it, after all. But what you need to see is that there's something deeper going on. This is not just a story of, of Joseph's family finally, you know, coming and, hey, they're looking at apartments, and now they found one. They've got a place to live. That's, that's not what's going on here. It's bigger than that. So I'm going to ask you to remember way back, way back to Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember what the Lord had promised Abraham oh so many years ago? He promised to make of him a great nation, to bless him, to make him a blessing to others, and to protect his descendants, the family tree. Just a few chapters after that, Genesis chapter 15, the Lord filled out that promise with a prophecy. He said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. After that time, the Lord would bring them out of that foreign land. Friends, if you're not familiar uh, this is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. This is God's promise to Abraham, not only to care for him, but to give him a people that he would care for also. From Abraham came the folks that we would end up calling Israel. And some of you maybe have been talking about that kingdom the last few months in Sunday school. This is where they're coming from, from these few folks here in Genesis. Joseph and his brothers then are the next step toward that eventual nation, even though they're not called there at this time. Only their father is called in. The picture we need to see is that God is keeping his promises. So often we mistakenly think that Israel's biggest problem is their, is their enemies. But the reality is that they face so many struggles over the centuries. Yes, enemies but also their own unfaithfulness as well. And not only the temptations of, of other nations and, and false gods, but here, even the reality of disasters such as famine. And that's why they're fleeing their own land. And the Lord is keeping his promises by providing for his people even in the midst of that famine. And if God's doing that, and that also means that everything that God told them would happen, that is people ending up as slaves in Egypt, that's also a part of God's plan. So much so that not only did he bring this up way back then with, with Abraham, but also that he would bring his people out of Egypt on the other side of those 400 years. You actually know what that is, though you might not yet know it. 
is called the Exodus. And that's what the book of Exodus speaks of. And it's the outworking of this promise, of this truth that God had foretold. I want you to take note. You and I might forget God's promises. Right? I mean, Genesis 12 is a long time ago. Uh, actually, I was, I was looking back. Um, that particular sermon I preached when I was early here in Sioux City. So yeah, it's been taking us a lot of years to get through Genesis. Uh, I mean, we've got to remember a long time ago. It'd be easy to forget. Not only that sermon, but easy to forget God's promises. We might even think little of them or, or not remember them, but realize this, God does not forget. We may all too quickly think that persecution or, or, or hardship or life not going as planned means that God isn't for us that he's changed his mind, that he's done with us, but we're wrong. Even those things, yes, even those hardships, the word tells us, are a part of how the Lord is getting his people where he wants them. Not just Israel, it's Egypt, but also in the sense of Christ's people, the church, into the eternity that he has promised them. This is what God's done. This is what you, if you're a Christian, this is what we, first and three, are a part of. One other point. I want you to notice how God's care is absolutely perfect. What might seem like a bad thing, I mean, Joseph's family is being kept away from the centers of power and, and wealth in Egypt. And if I even just hey, take out Joseph's family and inserts any um, kind of political group these days, right? This would be seen as oppressive. This is the sort of thing that there should be reparations over, that there needs to be restitution over. This is awful. How dare the Egyptians do this? Notice, it actually ends up preserving them as a people and preventing them from being influenced by Egyptian false religion. Right, so what, what our current world would see as this terrible, oppressive thing is actually God's means of preserving his people in this foreign land. Our God is that great, that big. His, his power and his might, his plans and his mercy is so great that even what might be intended for, uh, for evil, as Joseph himself put it with his brothers, be a lasting good. Sometimes we don't recognize this enough. That maybe there are prayers and desires of yours that, that they seem good. You, you think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, according to the sorts of things you've given us examples for. What, why aren't you answering? What's going on? Lord, I've been praying for years that this person would be saved, that my spouse would be changed, that my, my child would turn. Why aren't you answering me? What's going on? I don't know all the answers. But I do know this. God is doing what is genuinely according to His plan. What is positively best. Your and my not understanding it doesn't make it untrue. 
perhaps the Lord isn't answering your prayers because he's wisdom. He knows that something else needs to happen first or that something else is better for you or for them long term. But never forget that our Christian faith is exactly that. It's a faith. It's a, a trust in who God says that he is. Pray then that the Lord would give you a heart that trusts. Remember the picture Jesus says, a childlike heart. And I know we could have a whole sermon on what all does that mean. I know at least it means this. It's a heart that's trusting, just as a child their parents. Pray that God would give you a mind to want what God wants. We are called to be conformed to Christ. The adults heard that in Sunday school, but if you weren't here, this is the exact opposite of what you and I are being taught every day in our world by our culture, by marketing, is that, that the world has to do what we want. That, that we have desires, and our desires are true, and so we should just get what we want, and if God wants to be a part of that plan, then he can bow to our, our will as wrong. Let me love you well by telling you things that's wrong. You're being lied to by our deceptive world. No, what's right is actually for us to be molded to God, to be molded to Christ rather than the other way. That's what's best for us long-term and in eternity. So we need a mind that wants what God wants. We need to, it's been said before, Seek God's thoughts after Him. Not because we are God, we're not. But we want a mind like our Savior. I pray that, that your actions would faithfully show this childlike trust that Christ calls us to. Because at the, at the risk of recapping again and again, you know, now we men, you heard us talk about that Saturday morning if you were here. Our Christian faith is not just knowledge. Knowledge is good. I'm pro-knowledge. That's great. But if that knowledge doesn't change how you live, how you believe, what you do, then it really doesn't matter. This is one of the fundamental problems of humanity. Just knowing something doesn't actually do anything. It's when you act on that. It's when you believe differently as a result of that. That's when it becomes, in this case, our faith. That's our culture. Lord, if your way really is best, then help me to conform to it, to embrace it, to be willing to trust. Like these are the sorts of things that we need to ask the Lord to mold us into, to change us first major point here is notice how God is at work in what we trust. Let's go to the second half of this uh, meeting with Pharaoh. It starts in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of my sojourn are 130 years. 
good and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of Pharaoh's sojourn. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. So we start with request. Now we have blessing. Jacob seems a bit of a pessimist, doesn't he? He characterizes his life as short and full of trouble. I have not done a funeral service for someone who's 130, but I don't think that would be short for us. In those days, it wasn't. That doesn't mean, though, that God hasn't been present or that his blessings to Jacob have been any less than those of his fathers. And I think that's the reality that brings Jacob to bless Pharaoh. Right? Doesn't that seem a little odd? It's almost like he's complaining and then he's blessing. And I think it's because we're missing the point. Jacob's not sitting there saying, well, God hasn't been with me. He hasn't done what I want. No, he's saying, hey, life is hard, but I've now been brought to this point. And isn't it amazing that now this, this descendant of Abraham, remember back to the promise, Genesis 12, you will be a blessing to all nations. Isn't that exactly what he just gave to Pharaoh? He blessed him. Well, we don't know the whole content of that, but it's nothing less, at least than one more step in the outworking of God's promise to bring hope to the nations. Now, we need to see this whole meeting not just as a formality. This is not just a two foreign dignitaries meeting and saying some things. No, this too then is part of God's promise. Because ultimately God has been caring not just for his people, but because he's caring for this family, he ends up caring for the whole nation of Egypt in the midst of this family. And in the most long term, in the you know, zoom the camera all the way out, the biggest view, it's going to look like a descendant of Israel saving every person who calls upon him to be forgiven of their sins. That's where the promise is going. So here then in this, this meeting between Pharaoh and you know, historically, this sort of no-name guy from, from Canaan, we actually have a foretaste, a, an appetizer of God keeping his promises to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, moving forward then to, to David, ultimately to us in Jesus. What are we to make of all that? I mean, in one sense, Joseph and his family don't have to do anything, do they? They simply receive. This passage corrects a problem then that we all too often we believe that our efforts bring about God's blessing. Right? I mean, maybe you wouldn't admit to that, but isn't there a part of you that at least at some point in your life has really thought, well, if I do this, God will bless me? 
And whether it's something very simple, you know, oh, I didn't read my Bible this week, and now this terrible thing happened. God must be angry with me. Or maybe it's the opposite. Oh, I can committed to, to pray with my spouse, and we've been doing that for a week, and oh, great, our, our bills are lower, and we got this check in the mail, and it's wonderful, and God must be wanting to punish me. That's not what we see here. In fact, I would say be very, very careful with that kind of thinking, because that very easily slides into that sort of health and wealth, well, if I do this, God owes me, which is completely unbiblical. Yes, there are blessings for obedience, but it's an obedience that's responding to Christ, responding to what He has done for us. Not you or I earning anything from God. God does not owe us. No, instead, what we find is that God cares for us even more than we care for ourselves. And that's why He offers blessing without cost, without us earning completely out of His mercy and His grace. And that's what the Gospel is. So the application then of this passage is actually very simple and yet very crucial. Do you believe in a God who is this generous, this caring, this loving? In a God whom you cannot earn anything from you cannot somehow gain his favor. You cannot make him owe you anything. And yet the best news is that this same God offers you his infinite grace and mercy and a place in heaven with our Lord forever. Doesn't that just change everything? You don't have to earn it. You can't. And the best part is, Christ has already done the work for you. You don't have to try to, to, to please God in an effort to, to get blessed. No, you, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ who read in the New Testament. And so we respond, we, we work out our faith in fear and trembling, as the Word says, not to earn any favor at all, but because we've already been given Have you ever noticed this in your life? Right? If someone does something nice for you, I hope that your response to them is, is this sort of, oh, well, I, I can't believe they did that. That has changed me. And, and, and I, I want to, you probably wouldn't say serve them, but I want to care for them in return. If that's not, your response, if your response is, well, of course they should do something. I deserve it. I'm great. I'm owed it. And that's, you need to get on your knees. Lord, change me because I'm, I'm missing something about the gospel because I don't deserve anything. No, if your response is, I can't believe this amazing grace that has been given to me. How can I, how can I not respond by following this Savior. If that's your response, you're in the right place. That's what obedience looks like. Not the other way around. Pray and 
and read the word and ask the Lord to change your understanding of his character so that you would respond to God not with not with an owning mentality or a deserving one, but instead with worship, with gratefulness, with often Christ spoke of joy, that you join in his redemption, talks of it seemingly more than anyone else, shouldn't that change us? And shouldn't then joy, not just the word, but the, the action, not only your emotion, but the response, shouldn't that characterize Christians? If we're not known for that, isn't there something, something out of whack? Second and finally, then, not only are, to, are we to believe in a God this generous, this caring, and this loving, but it also means that the Christian life is not one of earning or deserving, but of resting. I'm not talking laziness. That's, no, I mean this, this picture that the Bible gives us of a Sabbath rest, resting in our Lord, rest in Him, all that He has promised to be and to provide, resting in Christ's finished work on the cross, that we don't have to save ourselves, resting in the fact of His return at just the right time. And as the author of Hebrews reminds us, resting in the Sabbath that will never Friends, we could have a an amazing study sometime, and we should, we should, on what the Sabbath is throughout the Scriptures. I think too many of us have this idea of the Sabbath, oh, it's a day when I can't do any lawn maintenance or change the oil in my car, and I'm going to be judged if I go do any work, or that's missing the point entirely. Right? The reason that we observe the Sabbath and keep it holy boil it down and get it in a nutshell, it's because the Sabbath rest is not just one day in heaven. It's because it's what we're going to enjoy with God forever. And we're given a foretaste of that now. We're given part of that blessing one day in seven already. That's why it matters. We'll do some deeper thinking on Sabbath sometime here in the future. But for here now, we need to see that this is what we are given as a gift by God. We respond to that amazing reality, yes, with our actions and our attitudes, but those flow out of a grateful heart that wants to receive. If you don't have that desire, ask the Lord to give it to you. Lord, give me that desire. That's not a bad prayer at all. Help me to think right now. Help my emotions to match what's true, not just how I want to react. Those are prayers I've needed to pray. And ultimately, grateful hearts wanting to respond is where you and I need to be as people and as a church. So this week, then, rest in the Lord. Make time. Be intentional. Carve it out. Put it on your planner if you need to. You can put other things on your planner. Why not put dedicated time to be with the Lord, to thank Him, to refresh your mind of His promises, to simply enjoy who He is.
think often of how good the Savior is to you. Worship and trust and grow in your identity in Christ. Open his word. Believe what he says. Not to earn, but as a child receiving an immeasurable want to know what these first 12 verses in Genesis 47 are about? They're about God's people receiving the gift of God's promise. Resting in Him and trusting Him for all that will come. You want to know what the application of Genesis 47 verses 1 through 12 is for us? It's about us trusting the God who keeps His promises, who will see us safely and whom we will enjoy forever. Let's pray. Lord, would you have exactly that truth worm its way down from our heads to our hearts, and from our hearts then to our hands and feet, that we would be changed and transformed and renamed and molded people who follow Jesus, who follow Him out of this trust, out of, out of a response to His mercy and grace, not just obligation, not, not trying to earn anything. We've already been given everything. And I have no doubt that there are some either right this morning or maybe with whatever's coming in the week ahead who certainly don't feel blessed. Feel like your promises have been held strong for them. Lord, you know who those people are today. I pray that you would reassure them. Meet them where they're at. Show them your goodness and greatness and produce in them this kind of response. Lord, there are others here this morning who, who hear this and it is a peace their soul. And I pray that you would help them to enjoy you and then to share, not out of obligation, but out of overflowing joy and excitedness to share that with someone else today. Perhaps that would be the exact way that would help us all go deeper in Christ and to speak of Him. In His name we pray. Amen.